So today I want to talk about our time, our talent, our treasure, and particularly I want to talk about um, the treasure aspect of things. And when you talk about this subject, three people usually have three responses. One is um, it makes people uncomfortable. And so I don't, I don't want to make you, my desire is not to make you uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable, that's your problem and you can talk to God about it, okay? It's not my problem. A second thing uh, in this area is sometimes people say, ah, oh, the church talks about that so much. Well, LifePoint doesn't talk about that much, right? Are y'all with me? We don't do that much. And so I'm going to hammer it all home today. I'm going to get it out of the, out of, out of, and, but, but I think that you'll enjoy it today. Um, we're not going to, I'm not going to guilt you at all today. We're going to look at some scenes in the Bible of generous people who gave of their treasure that God had entrusted them with and God used it for um, significant things. A third response to this topic is people just say, bring it on. Um, I want every aspect of my life to fall under the sovereignty and lordship of Christ and even in this area. So by way of introduction, I just want to make a clarification about things. I believe every Christ follower should be a tither. And yet, in the midst of that, there are a special group of people who have been given the spiritual gift of giving. So I believe all of us are to give, but there's a special group that the Holy Spirit has given them a gift, and it's a spiritual gift called giving, and they are ones who are constantly trying to find ways to help people. And they're the kind where uh, they're not sitting back waiting for the church to say there's a need. They are trying to find out the need, and, and, they, and sometimes they even notice the need before we notice it because of the way the Spirit has wired them, and they're trying to find out. And we have seen uh, this fall even, uh, those who have that gift of giving have been faithful in how they have uh, helped people with their rent. They have helped people go on some of the mission trips and some other things of that nature. And so while all of us are called to give, um, there is a special group that have this gift of giving. And so what I want to talk about today are, are, is not just, I'm not, I'm not even going to talk about the gift of giving today. What I want to talk about to, today is, is that in the New Testament, when you come to the New Testament, the heart of the New Testament, which I, I believe teaches the tithe, but I think the heart of the New Testament um, speaks and teaches something um, a little bit more than that. And what it does is it speaks of generosity. And you see in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and you even see some places in the Old Testament, where the call is not to look at our giving to the kingdom of God as a maximum of 10%, but it is to look at the kingdom and say, I'm, I want to be generous in regard to how I take care of God's people and how I give to the kingdom to see the kingdom um, extended in, in a great way. Let me give you two examples that I read this week. There was a guy named, um, he was called the Honorable Alphaeus, and I don't think any people, not many people probably are called Alphaeus anymore, but he was named Alpha, Honorable Alphaeus Hardy. And he was real instrumental in seeing the gospel get to Japan. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He really wanted to be a missionary to Japan, but he had some health issues that came up early in his life, and he was not going to be able to go and, and live in a foreign environment because it was just going to be too difficult for him. And one day, he was just on his face saying, God, I want to go to the nations, and I want to go, and I'm not going to be able to go now because of my health. And he sensed as he was pouring his heart out to God that God said, why don't you be a successful businessman and mobilize missionaries and mobilized churches to take the gospel to Japan. And he became one of the leaders of getting the gospel 
established in Japan. And it came about because he just needed to look at his life in a different way. Another story I read this week is by a guy named Dr. Oswald Smith. Um, George Beverly Shea sang a lot in uh, the Billy Graham Crusades. And one of the songs that George Beverly Shea was written by Dr. Oswald Smith, it was called Then Then Jesus Came. I couldn't pull it out of my head, so I looked it up on YouTube this week. Um, it's one of those kind of Gaither, one of those things in the Gaither line of music. But it's a really good song, really cool. But I read a story about him in, in regard to giving. And this is the same way with him. He wanted to go to the nations and be a missionary. But God said, no, I want you to pastor. He said, no, God, I, I want to go to the nations. No, I want you to pastor. And so he became to a place where he said, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. God's called me to pastor, and I'm going to mobilize my church to be a giving church, to send missionaries, and to send money, and to send resources to see the gospel established in the nations. And both of those guys were just very, very genuine and gen- generous in regard to the things that they did. And so before we begin to walk through some of the scenes of the Bible um, about this, I just wanted to, to point out to us this morning that while all of us are called to give, um, a part of that is that we would be generous givers in regard to how we use our time, talent, and treasure. So we're going to kind of do a sermon documentary today. And we're going to look at, y'all ready for a Bible drill? Remember Bible drill? Some of you know whatever Bible drill is. But we're going to look at eight different brief stories. Some of them are a little bit longer of generous giving in the Bible. And uh, it was good. The first service loved it. So y'all better love it, right? All right. Go with me to Exodus chapter 35 first. As you're turning there, let me kind of give you the context. So the nation of Israel has been, they've left Egypt. <clears throat> Moses is leading them. Um, they are wandering around in the desert. God leads them at night by a pillar of fire during the day. He leads them by a cloud. But then uh, Moses has gone up on the mountain. God's given Moses in Exodus 20, 10 commandments. A little bit later, Moses comes down from the mountain. The people are uh, worshiping um, a golden calf, and Moses throws the tablets down. I, I don't recommend throwing the Ten Commandments down, but Moses did. They broke. Moses goes back up in the mountain, and God rewrites the Ten Commandments uh, in stone again. Moses brings them down. While Moses was up there at that time, God passes by Moses, and Moses had cried out, God, I want to see your glory. And so God says, you can't see my face. It'll kill you, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by, and I'll let you see my backside. God's glory on his backside was so bright that it literally lit up Moses' head. He walks down the mountain in Exodus 34. He's a light bulb on top of a human body, and they have to put a turban, they have to cover it up with a veil um, uh, Moses' head. And then you get to chapter um, 35, and, and out of that experience, God begins to give the instructions to the nation that as they wonder, they are to worship him in the desert. And God wants to build what's called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And it's going to involve a massive amount of resources and time and talent and treasure and um, uh, skill from the people to, to build these things. And God gives some specific instructions. So look with me, Exodus 35, uh, beginning in verse 4. So Moses said to all the congregation of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, 
oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for the setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. So he gives them instructions. Listen, bring gifts. God wants us to do this so there will be a place of worship while we're here in the desert. And so within the nation, there are resources that the people have. They have brought things with them as they left Egypt. There are things they have picked up along the way. There is no Home Depot out there to build this. There's no traveling by of buying resources. So God comes to the people and says, I want you to contribute to the building of the tent of meeting where you will worship me and where I will be in the midst of the people. There will be the sacrifices will begin to happen and take place. And so God instructs the people to do it. And so the people began to bring things. And the Bible tells us, look in verse, uh, look in verse 11 now. Or look at verse 10. So let every skillful craftsman um, among you Come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And so there are skills within the nation to build this. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases. And on and on it goes all the way down to that. Now look at verse 20 of chapter 35. So then all of the congregation of the people, Moses has given the instruction of what is needed, what's going to happen and take place. They departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, brought brooches, earrings, signet rings, and armlets, and sorts of all sorts of objects, gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins, they brought them. Go to verse 30 now. And then the two guys are going to be really critical in kind of leading the building of this. It says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and has filled him with the Spirit of God and with skill with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for the setting and carving wood for work and every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oheliab, Oholiab, excuse me, the son of uh, Ahithamach of the tribe of Dan, And he has filled them with the skill to do every work done by an engraver or by designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Boy, that's some fascinating reading right there, isn't it? It's just kind of setting the stage, and it's really awesome, actually. It's great prep. Because when you get to chapter 36, the people began to bring gifts. So they go back to their tents. They go back and look among their stuff. Okay, we want to bring it. God's stirring in the hearts of the people to contribute to this building of this place where they're going to worship Him. And they begin to bring these things to the workers who've been assigned to do this. And so you've got, you've got people making the curtains. You've got people making um, the, all the stuff for the, where the sacrifices are going to make and the poles. And you've got all of this work going on. And people are bringing their resources to those specific people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 36. So Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord had put skill and intelligence to know how to do any such work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. 
And Moses called Bezaliel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come up and do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. And they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of work on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing. And they had to come to Moses and say this, the people are bringing much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And look at verse 6. So Moses commanded and gave word throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient to do the work and all the more. I find that amazing. If you've been around church work for a while, have you ever heard of a building campaign where the elders have to come to the people and say, quit giving contributions to the building of what we're about to do? The people were so stirred and wanting to worship God because they had learned They rebelled against God and it caused so many problems for them. Now God has said, I want you to build a place to worship me and and, and I want you to contribute to it. So of your own resources, I want you to bring things. And people brought so much ready for the building of the tabernacle that Moses had to go to the people and say, stop giving. I am never going to do that. I'm not going to tell you to stop giving. So if you want to just give and give and give, I hope that you do generously i hope that i do generously because there are so many needs and so many things and so as god stirs us we want to be like this nation we want to be the kind of people as god stirs us we want to be generous givers like them let's look at the second story i want you to go to second corinthians chapter eight We'll talk now about the generous give to the great cause of the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. Two, only two of them survived. We don't know anything about the other two. Um, but these two, this is one that we call 2 Corinthians. And in this, he speaks about generosity in chapter 8. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. So he said, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their, of their, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means and of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they themselves They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see also that you excel in this act of grace also. What act of grace? This act of generosity, this act of giving. So in verse 8, So I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. genuine. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you by his poverty might become rich 
And look at 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment, and this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean others should be eased and you should be burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. And he talks more about their abundance and their present need. Let me kind of tell you what's going on here. There's an issue going on in Jerusalem with the saints in Jerusalem. And the, and the Christians and believers in Jerusalem are needing some financial help. So as Paul's going on his missionary journeys, he is making churches aware that there's a need for the saints and the believing saints in Jerusalem. And so the churches, as Paul goes, have been encouraged to contribute to this offering that's going to be taken to Jerusalem to help with the believers there. A year ago, Paul had come through Corinth, and the Corinthian believers where there was a lot of money in Corinth, and we believe the believers there had a lot of money. And they said, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to contribute to that. But they hadn't done anything with it. So 12 months ago, they had committed, we're going to give, but they had not given anything. And so Paul is writing to them and saying, hey, I want to remind you uh, of this reality that you had made a commitment to give to the saints in Jerusalem. And the generous are those who, who give to the great cause of the gospel. And this is an important thing. And so he uses two examples to help motivate the Corinthians and remind them why they should do this. Now, he doesn't make an infomercial that shows all the destitution that is taking place so that they feel guilty and are kind of moved emotionally about it. He doesn't create a chart that has a thermometer on it so that you're reaching a financial goal and it gets redder and redder and redder. He doesn't do anything of that. He, uh, he gives them two examples. And one example he gives them, he says, listen, I want to remind you, Corinthians, of how Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus lived in the throne room of heaven where the angels could not stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He owns the world and yet he came here, he emptied himself, and though he was rich... He made himself poor, and that has become for the benefit of you. You have now come to know Christ and salvation because he emptied himself and he laid his down, down his life for you. We know that Jesus never had a home that he owned. We know that often they slept places. He didn't have a, a bed for himself, and he had made himself poor and laid his life down so that we become rich. Not financially rich, but rich spiritually. At times, there's implications for his blessing in that, but that's not what Paul is appealing to here. He's saying, I want to remind you about Jesus. Second example he gives is the Macedonian churches. These are the European churches, the first European churches that were built. And so he says, listen, they were under great persecution, and they had a lot of poverty going on. I'm not sure exactly what all that was. Maybe some of them had lost their jobs because they had become believers or their businesses were down. But we know that the Macedonian churches were under persecution. And when Paul came through, they said, hey, we want to join in that. But we don't have a whole lot of money. But they were so excited about salvation coming to them that they were moved generously. And they said, we want to contribute to the saints in Jerusalem. And I love the principle in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The principle is simply this, is that we have a responsibility for the church. Not just locally, but globally. So if there's some way at times that God opens a door for us, like we have done so in Nepal and the Dominican Republic and some other places where the church has given financially, not just gone on trips, but a given financially, 
so that buildings could be built, so that children could be fed, and so that um, families' needs could be met, so that people could be clothed. Then God calls the church not just to focus on life point itself, but God calls us to look beyond ourselves and look beyond these walls and to look at needs. We have helped people in the community here. Sometimes I get calls and people say, I've never been to your church before, um, but they're about to turn our lights off. Um, is there anything that you can do? And so um, we have many times um, paid for people's electricity so that it could stay on. Um, sometimes we tell them, uh, how about if we just give you a $200 Walmart card so that you could buy a bunch of groceries and that way you can use your money to pay for um, your electricity and that'll help extend things a little bit further. And so we are called as believers to be generous and so Paul uses this with the Corinthian church to say, listen, I just want to remind you that the Macedonian churches, they didn't have a lot. Corinthian church, you have a lot. And 12 months ago, you promised to do something about it, and you haven't. The Macedonian churches have just come to faith, and they are under severe persecution. And yet they are saying, out of our poverty, we want to give to the goodness of the work that's there. All right, let's look next. Um, go to Luke chapter 21. I love the story. It's a short one, famous one. Jesus is in the temple one day in Luke 21. And I kind of picture him somehow. He's just kind of back over here. Maybe he's leaning up against the wall. And he's looking out where he is. And he's looking. And he's, there are these boxes in the temple when you would come into the temple and you would put your offerings in those. And he's just kind of somewhere, and he's just watching what's taking place as people come into the temple, and they walk over to the offering box. And he's just observing, and he's just watching, and it's obviously he's got some of his followers with him. Uh, possibly the twelve didn't tell us exactly who was with him, but we know probably the disciples. And look at Luke 21.1. It says, And Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And when Jesus saw this, verse 3 tells us that truly, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live in, to live on. So just picture Jesus over there and he's just kind of looking people mosey into the temple for worship, for prayer and giving. And they've come and he's watching those. And again, I notice there, don't read into something that's not there. Jesus isn't downplaying at all what the rich are giving. There's nothing negative about what he says about what the rich are giving. He just says the statement, they are able to give and they still have left over. But there's a woman who comes in and she's so convicted and she knows that I have a responsibility according to the scripture to give. But all I've got left are a, are a couple of copper coins. And it says that when she dropped them in the offering box, Jesus said, and he knew this, that there wasn't anything left. She gave everything that she had to live on. That meant that when she walked out of the temple... There was no math that was going to tell her, um, this is how you're going to get your next bread. This is how you're going to get your next food. This is how the next thing's going to come to you. There was no amount of calculator that could do that. So when she put her coins in, no fanfare, nothing at all. She just puts it in. And as she puts it in, it is as if she is putting in her whole life. 
into the coin box. And by doing so, walking out of the temple, she's just saying this, I completely trust you, God, and I'm going to be obedient to you in this, in this moment. I've only got a couple of copper coins that aren't worth much, but it's all I have, and I give it. Some of us, I know, could give testimony in our lives. Pam and I, for 30 years now, um, have been faithful tithers. Um, we have trusted God, and there have been moments in our life and moments in your life as well. If you are a faithful, consistent giver to the church and to the kingdom of God, that the math doesn't always work, does it? <laughs> Just doesn't always work. How in the world are we going to make it the rest of the month if I give this 10%? That, that 10%, man, I'm, I'm going to make it if I keep that 10%. And we have found for 30 years now that it doesn't make sense on paper, but we have seen it totally make sense in our life that God has always come through. He has always come through. And that's what that woman is doing in the temple that day. She's just saying, I'm just going to trust you, God. Um, she has no idea how he's going to, and sometimes um, I wish the Bible sometimes gave us two, three, four more sentences, verses, because I'd love to know. I know he did. I know God met her need somehow. She could have met somebody right outside the temple. It could have been somebody who was a neighbor of her. It could have been a son that just showed up, whatever the case may be. I know that God met her need because God has always met the needs of his children. Has he not, right? He has. So she teaches us, and Jesus was so moved by it that day that she says, listen, you give generously from a place of trust. That God, I'm giving this because I trust you in this. Go to Luke chapter 10 now. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And so, Lord, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, and so likewise a Levite. And where, where he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. A denarii, one denarii was a day's wages. So he takes out two days' wages of the common man, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Hey, take care of him, and if you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back through here. And which of these, Jesus said, of the three, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. So Jesus tells a story to give a picture, another picture of what a generous life looks like. So here's a Samaritan. He takes care of this guy. 
he uses his money to use oil or buys bandages or he has them and he uses those to help this guy. He puts him up in an inn and he tells the innkeeper, listen, by my integrity, when I come back through, if you have to spend more money, I'm leaving you a little bit now, but I'm coming back through. When I come back through, you make sure you tell me whatever it is and you've got my word that I, I will pay whatever it has cost you to take care of this stranger. Such a beautiful picture of generous giving. Sometimes the generous, they just give more than money. And that's this picture of this good Samaritan is he gave of his time, he gave of his talent, he invested his integrity involved um, with that. And the challenge here is let's go and be a neighbor sometimes to those that we don't even know. Um, I'm moved sometimes by the guys under the, the overpass at 75 and 380. Um, there's a guy there, if you drive that way, um, who has both, he doesn't have two legs are gone and he's in a wheelchair there and so from time to you know time to time um i stop and buy some food and and give it to him and sometimes i drive through and i see people doing that and sometimes we're just called to contribute sometimes i've given money to people like that and i know um people have been critical of me and said you shouldn't do that they may go buy alcohol well i don't i just know that if god prompts me to give i just need to give and I just need to live that, leave that with God. And if they go and do something wrong with it, then they're going to have to give an account to God about that. But if I'm prompted to give, I just need to give and I need to do that. And that's exactly what the Good Samaritan does. Sometimes we're just prompted to do something for someone we don't even know and we desire to meet their need. Let's look at another one. Should go to Old Testament, Genesis chapter 45. I love this one. We know the story of Joseph. He's risen to power. By God's sovereign hand, but as a teenage boy, his brothers hated him. They threw him into a pit. They sold him into slavery. He's sold in an auction block in Egypt. He goes to work in a house of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife thinks Joseph is a handsome young man, um, makes sexual advances toward him. Joseph refuses. She lies over him one day. He's arrested and he's put in prison. All of this started with his brothers. Betrayal of him. So he's in prison. Two guys from Pharaoh's court come down, a cupbearer and the baker. One of them gets out, and Joseph says, he, Joseph interprets a dream. He gets out and says, Joseph says, hey, remember me. He forgets him. Pharaoh eventually has a dream. Nobody can answer it. He remembers, hey, there's a guy in prison who interpreted my dream. Maybe he can help. Joseph comes up, interprets the dream of Pharaoh about years of abundance, years of famine are going to come, and Joseph rises to this high place and his brothers are living in, Egypt, in Israel still. And the famine has hit so hard. It's two years into the famine. And they hear that Egypt has all of this food and resources. And so they journey down. And in Genesis 45, Joseph meets them for the first time in a couple decades probably. At least 15 to 20 years. And sees his brothers. They probably think he's dead. Look at Genesis 45.1. So Joseph is in a room with them. It says, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept, wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. This is some loud crying. Wept, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Brothers, brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They could not believe that they were in the presence of the one that they had sold into slavery. Look at verse 4. 
So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph. I love Joseph's language there. He doesn't say rotten scoundrels. You're not my brother anymore. You betrayed me. You're not worth me even calling you my brothers. But that's not. He said, listen, I am your brother. I belong to you still, Joseph said, whom you sold in, uh, and, uh, into Egypt. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be, neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth to keep alive, keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And I don't know if you notice there, watch this. Joseph tells them in verse 7, God sent me here, and though what you did was evil and it was wrong, God, we learn later, we know Joseph says these words, God meant this for good, but God sent me here, and look, what he, look at the language he hears, to preserve you, my brothers, you. He's not even speaking about himself. God has so moved in Joseph's life that he's already released his anger and what they did. And so he says, God has sent me here before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Look at verse 9. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. Listen to Joseph's heart in verse 11. Therefore, there, when you come back here, I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Look at verse 16 now. And when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you, listen to what Pharaoh says, I will give you the best land of Egypt, and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come, and have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Now watch this, such a great giving principle. Do the brothers deserve anything logically? No way. And yet God in his sovereignty moved in the heart of Joseph that generous forgiveness led to generous giving. Joseph's integrity had such an impact on pagan evil Pharaoh that he said, you bring your family here and I'm going to give them the best land in all of Egypt. See, God's generosity is amazing. When it works in our hearts. And so here's Joseph. Who had all of this bad stuff happen to him. And here he is giving his brothers the best. You see the generous give sometimes. Even when logically it doesn't even make sense. And it's not natural. But it's exactly what Joseph does in this moment. We're going to skip point six. Mark and we're going to go to point seven. I want you to go to John Chapter 6. I'm just going to give you two more. 
been around a toddler who has a package of crackers, about six of them, peanut butter crackers, and you ask them for one, and they're like, nope, it's mine. There's a, such a beautiful story in John chapter 6 of a little boy, we don't know how old he is, but he gives away his lunch one day. Look, look what happens here, John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, so he turns to Philip and says, Hey, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6 says, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip sees all these people come and he's like, Lord, it's going to take 200 dinar. It's going to take a commons man 200 days of wages to feed all these people. So he just, he's already budgeted. He's a Mark Verlander. Mark Verlander is really good at this. Just calculate, some of you are this way. You can calculate things really, really quick. And so here's Mark Verlander, and he's like, Jesus, ain't possible. It ain't possible. Calculated it. And I would be the same way. I'd see all these people coming. I was like, going, no, there's no way. I don't, man, I got, I got, I got four cough drops right here. I can contribute those. I don't know what we can do, but I don't, you don't have a whole lot. And just Philip looks at the thing, and he's like, man, it's not possible. Look what the text says next. But one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter, brother said to him well there's a boy here that we found and he's got five barley loaves he has uh, five barley loaves and two fish but what are they for so many and so Jesus said you have the people sit down now there was much grass in the place and so the men sat down about five thousand in number and Jesus took the loaves and when he had Given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when the disciples had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw that the sign that he had done, they said to one another, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, just, just, there's lots of teaching that you could do in John chapter 6, but let's just look at a little boy one day. And I don't know if his mom, his mom had said, hey, it's going to be a long day. You're going out there to see that Jesus guy. It's going to be hot out there. And so here's some, here's some bread. Here's two fish. These fish, are, they were kind of pickled, and so they're kind of, kind of very salty. And so he's got these things, and he takes them out there, and he's got his little sack lunch with a little heart on it. Love, Mom. And... And he's kind of taking it out there. And, and he's the only one, or his mom's the only one who's thought ahead, like, okay, this may be a long day, and we better pack some lunch. And, and so there's, so he turns to Philip. Hey, Philip, how, how are we going to do this? Man? Lord, Lord, I've calculated it. 200 denarii, half, over a half a year's wage of a common person. If we had that money, and that, if we had that money, we could do something. But then where are we going to go and buy bread? The bread truck's not coming by. Not honking the horn saying, hey, everybody come, come out and, and uh, come by and I've got tortillas for you and, and all that. They're, they're, that. That is not happening on the day. And then Andrew goes and says, hey, here's a little boy and he's got this little lunch. And, and I, again, I wish there was more detail, but can you just picture this? 
eternal son of God standing there and you got a little boy, let's say seven or eight. And Jesus says, hey, can I have that? And he just goes, yep. And when you put simple material things in the hand of God, he can do some of the most amazing things. And he just takes five barley loaves and two little fish and he just says, thank you, Father. And he multiplies it. Many scholars have said this, that it's possible that about 12,000 people were there that day. It's calculated 5,000 men. And so just this little gift that the boy gives turned into this generous thing. And if you didn't notice there, that everybody ate as much as they wanted. If Brian Hill had been there that day, he'd have said, Thomas, come here, I want more fish. And Thomas would have come over to Brian Hill and said, here you go, here's some more fish. More bread, okay. Here's more bread. Look, listen to me. Listen. This stuff that we have, all of us, is not ours, it's His. And those who faithfully give of their resources financially, they never, they, they never say the tithe, 10%, is the maximum amount. For them, it's the beginning amount. And I think the heart is generous giving, fundamental standard, 10%. And I think those who tithe, they have the idea of going, God, it's, they don't do this. They don't do, God, why do you want 10%? They say this, God, thank you that I get 90%. It's just an attitude switch, just a heart condition. And that's what the little boy did that day. He just said, here, you can have it all. And guess what the little boy got that day? He just thought he was going to have five small pieces of bread and two fish. Guess what he got to do? He got to eat as much as he wanted. He got to eat more than he was, had planned on eating. And that's what happens when we give our resources and our time and our talent and our treasure to God. Let me just tell one last story. It's found in Luke 19. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's passing through Jericho. He is just passing through, Luke 19 tells us. There's a guy that lives there. He's a Jewish tax collector. His name is not Matthew. His name is Zacchaeus. And he is a wee little man, as the song tells us. And this commotion comes. Jesus is here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And, 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 and he's on his way. Zacchaeus hears about the commotion. He's heard about Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. He kind of surveys the situation. The crowd is too big. He can't squeeze in between them to see Jesus. So he runs ahead, and this grown man climbs a tree. He's the Cody Vanderwell of our church. Cody climbs every tree out here to the tip top, and one day he's going to, I told his dad, one day he's going to get hurt, and it's your fault, Dad. Okay, it's your fault. No. But Cody's our Zacchaeus, and so Zacchaeus goes, and he climbs up the tree, and he's calculating where Jesus is going to come, and I love what Luke 19 says, and says, when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was, he stopped. Everybody's walking along with Jesus, loud commotion, and Jesus just stops. He's, he's already seen Zacchaeus, because Jesus can see everything. And he looks up, and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, what are you doing up there? I want to come to your house. And everybody around is like, what? He wants to spend time with a sinner? Oh, my goodness. Aren't you glad that he wants to spend time with sinners? 
that Jesus does? And Zacchaeus comes down, and I want you to listen to what Zacchaeus says. He is transformed. He comes to faith on this day. And listen to what Zacchaeus says. In the midst of Jesus and all these other people. Luke 19, 8. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half my goods I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will not just give back what I've defrauded, but I'm going to give it back fourfold. I'm going to multiply it four times. And he's indicating this, that he had done that. And he had withheld from helping the poor. And a Jewish tax collector was rich because he skimmed money on, his, on the side as well. And we, from research, we know that that's what the, the tax collectors did. So this guy's got money and he recognizes, my life has been transformed now by the gospel and I've lived wrongly and I've treated my fellow Jews wrongly. And so his heart is so free in the moment, he just says this, I, I've made money my God, I've made money my life, and now I'm just going to use money now to help people. And that's what a transformed life does. When we are transformed by the gospel, it is much easier to let go of things and to give them to God and allow God to use them. So this is the story of someone who goes from a collector of money to one who is a giver of money to the good of people around him. So those are some scenes of generous giving in the Bible. Is everybody okay? Did I hurt your feelings this morning? I don't really care if I did at all. I really don't want to lose any sleep. You can email me. You shouldn't talk about that. And I'm not even going to respond to your email, so don't send it to me. Okay. There's a joy to be on this ride called Christianity. Let me give you one closing story. We're going to sing a song. And by the way, enjoy that I got through early. Yeah, because it's the last time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <clears throat> last year, uh, we took up a big offering last spring um, to build a church building in Nepal. And we got it built. And we slept in it. And the gospel is thriving in a place where there's persecution. Church is growing. Um, you gave so much. We gave so much. All of us gave so much that there were some left over. And so... Um, about five months ago, there's another building that's in, in Nepal of the partnership that we have there that we were able to use that money to put a roof on the building. So they just had this open building when it rained. People are just sitting in there in the rain. And so we've been able to put a roof with the extra giving that was done um, there. And so we've put, I think, three roofs on uh, churches in Nepal. Um, and we've built the church. And it's just a sign of the beauty of why I love our church that we're like the Macedonian church. We, we, we don't have a First Baptist budget. Um, we're kind of like a Macedonian church. But out of our poverty and out of our smallness, we have given greatly and given big. And I want to challenge us to do that. We're a little behind this year financially from last year, about a little over a month. And so if you are behind, I'd love for you to catch up. Um, just because um, that helps us minister to more people but let's be on this ride together let's continue to do let's continue to surrender our hearts every part of our life to christ and he will do a great work all right let's pray